Welcome to Get to the Future on Time. Do differently tomorrow with Jay Allen. Today, we're going to challenge you to think differently and do things differently. To search for what is seen as impossible to do in your field or industry, but if done, would be transformative. To understand that the burden of regret is greater than the risk of leading. Now, here is your host, Jay Allen. Hello, I'm Jay Allen, your host of Get to the Future on Time, Do Differently Tomorrow. One of my favorite quotes I think is appropriate as we open our discussion. Thomas Edison said, there is a better way to do it. Find it. A very declarative statement. Not maybe, but go after it. Find it. We're excited today to have three experienced guests with us. They've led in so many aspects of their life, uh, from business to education to social opportunities. Uh, First, we have Dennis Campbell a definite driver of change. And Dennis, you have extensive experience in industries such as automotive, electronics, clean tech, and others. And you've also worked in a range of areas, public, private, family-owned businesses, and even valued from 60 million to 1.7 billion and across 22 countries. What a great thing to have you on board today. And Chuck Foster, You've got some wonderful experience likewise. You've held several executive leadership positions over 30 years, and your concentration has been in all aspects of human resources, from organizational planning to diversity. And it's been remarkable that you've had responsibilities in as a key leader in change management with over 20,000 employees. So welcome aboard, glad to have you with us. And Paul Hillen, You've had leadership positions in private equity, Cargill, Procter & Gamble. You've led some very demanding organizations. And you are a partner and president and chief operating officer of Revere Brand, Revere Cattle Cattle Company. And quite an accomplishment to also, recently you've authored with Paul Botts a book on how goodness pays. And... And over and above all that, you teach innovation at the Chicago Booth Schools and Carlson Schools. So it's really wonderful to have all three of you on board, uh, your perspectives. And uh, Paul, where are you today? Did you return from time off? I did. I was uh, somewhere warm and it was great to get away. And I'm back in Minneapolis. In fact, you mentioned the book and I'm at Good Leadership Enterprises, which are the offices of my co-author, Paul Botts. So ready to go. That's great. And Chuck, where are you today? Uh, I'm in uh, Arizona, in Phoenix, Arizona. And um, uh, it's uh, early in the morning here uh, compared compared to you guys. Well, I hope you had your coffee. We're going to have a fun day. Coffee and tea. And Dennis, where are you this morning? I'm in Minneapolis this morning. Good. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about overall experience in change and even the impact of transformation that you've seen in all of your industry experience. Dennis, you want to head us off? Well, you you asked about the uh, what does change and transformation mean to me, and uh, I think the answer is, to me, it's it's about survival. And I I got a chance early in my career to see this up close and personal. Uh, I remember when, this is 1977, Ken Olson, who was the CEO and founder of Digital Equipment, you remember 
it was a, a big time computer company, mainframe computer company back then. Yeah, it's a big he, deal back then. He famously said, there is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. And uh, how wrong he was, and of course, digital equipment is no longer in business. He didn't see what was coming, and, and that was a, a missed opportunity. Uh, my experience with change and transformation was uh, you know, back in the, uh, in the auto industry is where I started my career. In the 1970s, uh, the auto industry faced some tough times. We had new emission standards we had to meet. At the same time, we had the uh, oil embargo, which created an energy crisis, and there were gas lines. And we found ourselves at Ford with all the wrong engines. We had big fire-breathing V8 engines, and the world wanted small four-cylinder engines. We didn't have any. So there was a big transformation happening, uh, trying to build cars to meet these dual threats or dual uh, needs low emissions and high fuel efficiency. We didn't really know how to do it. And the cars of the 70s were terrible. The quality was terrible. And uh, in the late 70s, Ford decided to do something about it. And they launched a big campaign. You may, may remember that quality is job one. It, it's still heard around uh, Ford these days. Yeah. But, but at the time, it was all banners and slogans. We really didn't have a plan. We just wanted to make quality job one. And everything changed in 1980. Uh, you guys may remember this, but there was a TV program, an NBC News white paper called, If Japan Can, Why Can't We? And I'll tell you, that one-hour newscast changed everything. Ford began to send scores of teams over to Japan to learn the Toyota production system and to learn how they were doing what, what they were doing with the tremendous quality versus the American-built cars. At Ford, uh, we took the step of hiring Edwards Deming, who had spent the last 20 years in Japan teaching them how to improve their quality and build their industries. Uh, and, and we learned from Deming that uh, management is the root of most problems. And this was very hard for people to accept. Uh, and and there, were, there were many who didn't, couldn't accept that idea. Uh, accepting it was a huge step forward for those who did. We learned to study the process, uh, not, the, not the people, eliminate root causes of variation. We looked, he, he taught us that production quotas and work standards, which we'd relied on for years in that industry, um, were actually not helping productivity, they actually limited productivity and reduced productivity. We decided that, he, he taught us that involving employees was important. I remember going over to Japan and visiting a number of different companies, and we'd always ask them, uh, do you have a program for employee involvement where you involve your employees in decision making? And they all said, yes, we do. Uh, and I said, is it voluntary or mandatory? He said, no, it's voluntary. Well, I said, what percent of your employees participate? 100%. So, you know, it's voluntary, but it's 100% participation. So voluntold. <laughs> voluntold, right. So, uh, <clears throat> and, and not everyone at Ford bought into this new thinking. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in a business where we were considered an innovator. Uh, we were putting new plastic applications into cars every day and really changing the way cars were built. So we were viewed as the innovator and we got a chance to try out many of these new ideas. And uh, we, uh, I was very proud to be a part of that. And I think we, we really changed uh, Ford Motor Company for the better uh, during that period. 
I remember actually carrying around a Business Week magazine. I had two or three of them, so I wouldn't wear them out. And the cover had the Japanese flag on it, and it said, can anyone compete with Japan? I remember that issue. Mm-hmm. And that was hey, Dennis, attention. Yeah, Dennis, Paul. This is, Dennis, this is Paul. I'm just wondering, um, as you went through that transformation, because that's quite an interesting story, what do you think was the biggest you know, barrier or pushback from the organization was the, the, that you had to overcome? Because that doesn't sound like it's an insignificant uh, transformation. Oh, it was massive, and there was a tremendous amount of inertia. Uh, a lot of my colleagues, I, I was very young at the time. I was uh, uh, the youngest plant manager in the company. I was you know, in my early 30s, and most of my colleagues were in their mid to late 50s, people at my level doing uh, this, this work, running factories. Uh, and they didn't want to change. This was not something they wanted to do. They wanted to ride it out their five years, eight years from retirement. They said, this will pass. We can get through this. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. It's, it's what they've learned over their whole career. So there was a lot of pushback, a lot of inertia. And, uh, and not everybody bought into it. Uh, but w- I was, like I said, one of the lucky facilities where we got to try these things and we put them into effect and we demonstrated the, uh, the, the positive impact of making these changes. And then over time, it spread to, to all the divisions in the company and became the way of doing things. But we were really the innovators. And, uh, and, uh, but I got a good look at the challenges of overcoming these things. You know, the United Auto Workers is a very tough, tough union. And uh, when we went in and said, we want to eliminate work standards, uh, and, and the idea of eliminating work standards is, in the old days, you had a work standard that said you had to produce 100 widgets uh, in the day, let's say. Well, when you got to 100 widgets, it didn't matter if you were four hours into the day, six hours into the day, or eight hours into the day. When you got 100, you were done. And people would just sit on the production line and do nothing for hours because they'd met their standard and we couldn't ask them to make another widget. So eliminating work standards was a very important thing to do, but it met a lot of resistance for obvious reasons with the union. So overcoming these things uh, took a lot of energy. And uh, there were a lot of casualties along the way, let's say. But we did make it happen. I have a question. Go ahead, Paul. I mean, uh, Donna. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just teasing Chuck. (laughs) Were you there when when, um, when Iacocca came in? um, Oh, yes. Yes. How was that transition from your perspective? um, Well, Iacocca, of uh, course, got fired. Yeah, I know. He got got fired because he wanted to innovate, and and Henry Ford II didn't. Iacocca was an advocate for smaller cars, smaller engines, more fuel efficiency. Uh, Henry Ford II believed we were doing great with big cars. We should stay that way. And ultimately, the disagreement led to Iacocca's dismissal. So there was one of the casualties of uh, transformational change. That was kind of my... um um, observation as well, and and could you tell that difference at the uh, plant plant level? Oh yes, of course. Uh, it, you feel it through the whole the whole vibration goes through the whole company. You know, uh, wow. we all see what's going on, and uh, yeah, it was very evident. And, and the last last question on it: 
did they bring in any outside um, um, management advisors or consultants and things like that? We did. We brought in uh, Edwards Deming. Uh, we were the first automotive company to hire, maybe one of the first companies in the U.S. to hire and really engage with, with uh, Dr. Deming. In fact, at my plant, I was running a factory at the time, and we had Dr. Deming in my, in my boardroom with my staff, you know, there were 12 of us and Dr. Deming for a full day uh, to teach us about statistical process control. You know, by, by the time Deming peaked at the end of the, toward the end of his career, you had to see Deming with a thousand other people in a big auditorium. But I had him with 12 people in my, in my conference room uh, because we were one of the first to engage with him. And, and we learned a lot. Ford learned a lot and benefited enormously from Dr. Deming's involvement with the company. He taught us so much. That's great. There's a, there's a book out by a fellow by the name of Schirkenbeck who uh, actually explained in more detail some of Dr. Deming's concepts because some were complex, some were very simple. Yeah. And uh, Chuck, you had uh, experience with that uh, back when you were with Allied Signal that became Honeywell. And I remember uh, uh, working with you on um, some of the Malcolm Baldrige principles, which uh, were the, was the U.S. equivalent of what happened in Japan. One of the um, most enlightening experiences in, in my career was uh, working with you, Jay, but also um, then uh, with the original leader, a guy named uh, Fiedler. And uh, he was the kind of guy, uh, if you... I saw the Wizard of Oz and the Wicked Witch, Witch of the East, who didn't want not want to hear any bad news. Uh, he was that kind of guy. So uh, uh, when uh, Tom came, it was a very dramatic change in the in the, the leadership. So um, uh, it, it, it was a unionized environment. Um, basically, I had uh, taken them from where they had something like uh, two hundred. Uh, uh, open issues and I got it down to like three or four. And so when we were moving toward um, centralizing all of the uh, HR stuff for that, for that area, there, were, there was an automotive unit there, there was uh, the wheels and brakes unit there, uh, and uh, there was a marketing unit there. So I put together a, a centralized system at that time, which was cutting edge, where all of the HR questions and, and issues were consolidated in one organization. Now, I wasn't the person who ran it, but I was the person who uh, was a, the project leader on that. Um, when you came in, you worked more with the, the leadership at um, Wheels and Brakes uh, in an environment where they basically, um, we, we met together as a team below the, the uh, vice president there to identify problems, solve them, and make sure that when we took them to him, uh, they were fixed. So we could not bring him, him a, a problem. So that's kind of how I learned to um, uh, step out on to if, if I receive an assignment to make sure that uh, we uh, designed the uh, process and solutions and, and got them all done, ready for approval. Uh, so uh, having completed work. Uh, I moved from there to the um, Phoenix, 
to do the, the same thing uh, to consolidate all of the um, HR activities in Phoenix for the aerospace uh, uh, business. Uh, Wills and Rakes were aerospace as well. Um, and the interesting thing about that was um, they also had me um, run the diversity effort. And here the, the, the issue was uh, it was a good old boys network. There was very little opportunity for people who uh, weren't in the good old boys network to move in the organization. So what we did is um, uh, we inst installed posting, uh, we installed um, um, uh, review boards to, to make sure that uh, anyone who had talent had an opportunity for positions that were open. And this was a, a tremendous culture change. Uh, uh, I used to, um, uh, then I, I kind of uh, uh, had a car that I should have sold because it was old, but I decided that um, because my car was being damaged, so I, st I started driving that car because there was so much disruption going on that uh, we kind of blame, blame me for it. The long and short of it, though, is that each of the leaders in aerospace had a diversity goal that they had to achieve. And that uh, got approved all the way through the top of, of um, the organization. So uh, in, in many ways, um, I developed strategies to push the authority uh, down to what we called focus groups. There was a Hispanic one, there was a, a black one, there was a female one, uh, there were uh, people who were older uh, who uh, met as uh, uh, focus groups and they would identify the issues that pose barriers for their growth in the organization and I would give them voice and visibility uh, to the leadership. So basically uh, we uh, transformed uh, that whole um, arena so that um, through posting and visibility and setting goals at the leadership level, uh, we saw market increases in each of the representation areas for the concerned employees. So it was kind of a- That's, that's uh, you were ahead of your time. And uh, Paul, we wanna come back and hear your thoughts, but we're going to be going to uh, break here shortly. And, uh, but just a comment on Chuck, uh, I lived through some of that with you. I watched you do it with tremendous leadership, and you brought back change, brought around change that uh, I think everyone did not think was possible. So congratulations. Thank and you. we're going to move to a short break now, and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Are you struggling to gain a competitive edge in your market? Are you looking for innovative ways to engage customers, improve responsiveness, and inspire your team to grow your business? Masters Alliance Strategic Management Consulting Firm brings over 30 years of experience partnering with a wide variety of industries in 13 countries to achieve breakthrough business results. Jay Allen and his team of professionals can help your organization consider new strategies and creative solutions to produce a lasting impact. Masters Alliance delivers the knowledge and experience to help your team take action now. Masters Alliance will work with you to engage employees, customers, and suppliers to accelerate how you do things to gain growth and competitive advantage. Our team brings fresh perspectives and a track record of excellence to help you accomplish your business goals. 
If you're ready to set your business apart and make a difference in your markets, Masters Alliance is ready to help. Visit mastersalliance.com to learn more. Are you ready to break the mold and discover your business edge? Are you ready to get to the future on time? Then take the bucket off your head and transform something. Opportunities are everywhere. Drawing on key principles from his award-winning Bucketheads book, Jay Allen and his team at Masters Alliance Consultancy, LLC, will support you as you take your organization out of its comfort zone, energize and embolden your team to champion new thinking. Identify obstacles to growth and look at markets, customers, and competition from a fresh perspective. Discover your organization's outlook on the future and potential to shape that future. Does your team appreciate the excitement of achievement? Do they understand that today may already be obsolete and tomorrow's opportunities are easy to miss? It's time to take action. Get in the new game and make a difference in the marketplace. Commit to success today. Get in touch with Jay Allen at mastersalliance.com. Get your copy of Bucketheads today. Available at Barnes & Noble and Amazon.com. See more at bucketheadsbook.com. tuned into get to the future on time do differently tomorrow hosted by jay allen to reach out to the show with questions or comments please send an email to info at mastersalliance.com that's info at mastersalliance.com now back to get to the future on time do differently tomorrow welcome back i'm jay allen host of get to the future on time do differently tomorrow and we're very excited to have three experienced guests and leaders that we've been talking with today so far, Chuck Foster, Paul Hillen, and Dennis Campbell. And we've been discussing their experiences with change and even transformation. And we're going to continue that discussion. Paul, how about you addressing that? Sure. I, um, you know, my experience, you had mentioned up front, Jay, that, you know, one of my roles when I was at uh, Cargill was to lead the innovation portfolio globally. And uh, I made that transition from Procter & Gamble. I spent 15 years at Procter & Gamble and uh, where, um, you know, higher value and moving up in the value chain and developing both B2B and B2C consumer benefits was just kind of commonplace. And I was recruited to come over to Cargill to help, um, you know, move Cargill from being a, you know, let's sell single ingredients. And for those who may not be familiar with Cargill, it's, it's one of the largest food companies in the world. It's, it's over $140 billion. It's the largest privately held company. And so by the time I got there, they had over 140 years of very successful uh, experience. And so the transformation was how do we move from, selling primarily single ingredients to really selling uh, benefits to our customers and to the, their customers, customers or the consumers. And how do you put multiple ingredients together and how do you sell uh, solutions? And, you know, when you think about there's something in sports called muscle memory and it takes to create muscle memory. So let's say you're shooting a basketball it takes somewhere between three and 5,000 repetitions. And, and so muscle memory is you, you stop thinking about it. You, you know, you just simply do it and you're playing the game of basketball. Well, to change that muscle memory, so let's say you learned how to shoot a basketball incorrectly, uh, to undo that and to teach new muscle memory, 
therapy takes 12 to 14,000 repetitions. And so think about that in business. As I came into an organization that had over 140 years of muscle memory of doing it one way and to transform an entire organization of over 150,000 employees uh, was quite, quite the task. And the biggest challenge was they had never really seen it. You know, trying to get someone to move to a different place was something they've never seen. It's kind of like, you know, before the, the fax machine or the iPhone, and you would describe it to somebody and say, well, we're going to put a piece of paper in, and 30 seconds later, the identical piece of paper is going to come across into somebody else's office a thousand miles away. They'd say, well, that's not even doable. That's an unimaginable uh, thing. And so it was quite uh, the task or the, or the challenge. But one of the things that you discussed, Jay, was, well, what's the risk of not doing it? The risk is, and Dennis brought this up, is survival. If, if we did not change as a company, our competition would have gotten there first, and especially because our customer base expected it. They expected us to help them with solutions and to be a different type of company because if we were the same old company, so my biggest challenge around the transformation was, was first of all, setting up kind of the compelling plan of what needed to be done. But then importantly, which is why I asked Dennis, you know, his the question of what was his biggest challenge? And I think, you know, Dennis articulated quite well. It was bringing people along. It was, um, you know, really that change management element. And I faced the same thing because I had to get people to something that they had never seen before. And then I had to get them aligned to it and committed to it because it really was was different. Um, and then setting up the accountability, of course. And so I had to change the muscle memory of the organization. And it took that repetition um, on a global basis to get the business unit leaders to be thinking about it in a very, very different way. And so it, from a personal perspective, I came from an organization that Procter & Gamble, which was very much top-down. It was command and control. And your title, you know, dictated how people followed you. So if you had a certain title and you were in charge of a function or a department or a business unit, people in essence, you know, kind of saluted and said, yep, we'll follow you. Um, at Cargill, however, it was very much of a consensus building, persuasion, influential culture. And so regardless of what my title was, and, you know, I was a vice president and president of a business unit at the time, that didn't matter. It was about persuading and influencing people on why it was good for them, why this change was going to be good for them. And so I had to take that tact and say, our business results as a company, as an enterprise and as um, a, an individual business unit or function, depending upon who I was trying to create that followership with, I had to show why us moving up in the value change and changing our business model was going to be good for them. And then getting them into that practice mode, getting back to that muscle memory piece of, of um, working with them on their innovation portfolio to create projects that were the new way so that they could actually see it themselves and experience it themselves. Because, you know, we, we tend to learn as humans, we learn what 20% of what we read, 30% of what we see or hear. 
but we really only learn 85% of what we experience and then ultimately 95% of what you teach. So I was trying to get everybody to that 85% that they had to experience the transformation themselves. And while at the same time, it was creating that muscle memory. And for me personally, that change was, is that I had to exhibit, you know, different leadership muscles. I had to move from, you know, I'm in charge and here's what we're going to go do. So jump on board to a completely different leadership style to I had to persuade and influence people that it was good for them and create the followership because they saw the benefit of the idea for the company and the benefit to them. And it made me a better leader. You know, I had to embrace that. I had to run to that change. And at the same time, I had to change my muscle memory as a leader the same way I was asking the organization to change their muscle memory around the business model. Well, that's, that brings up a couple of really important points in my mind. One is on the last comment you made about changing yourself as a leader. Uh, one of my favorite stories on that is a fellow by the name of Jack Knuth, and he ran a, a large plant, uh, 3 million square feet under one roof, and he, they had uh, 700 scientists and, uh, in that group as well as engineers. And I wa- arrived one day, and he I was down the executive hall, and he was the president, and he yelled down the hall, Alan, get in here now. And I thought, boy, I've screwed something up. And uh, I said, Jack, what's up? And he said, well, I got promoted through all these ranks and through this entire company uh, with broad reach in different states, et cetera, because I was the best problem solver and the best engineer, and I brought all this to the party. And he said, now, he said, I have to get my jollies out of helping other people and teaching them to lead. And he said, I've got that muscle or I couldn't have gotten here. But he said, it's not big enough to use those words. He He said, now what do I do? And so we had some good discussions, but he was open to doing exactly what you said to to. Making yeah. Those yeah, which which we all know too, right? I mean, it's continuing on the coaching analogy. It's if you're not open to coaching and changing, it's it's not going to happen. It has to be the skill and the will. And if the will isn't there, then you, you get to some tough decisions, right? On do I have the right folks on my team? And you brought up something else that it's even more apparent today in my career, uh, as many of you know that. I've worked in the consulting business for 30 years. I've worked with over 2,200 senior execs and their direct reports in 20 different industries, 13 countries, and on and on, that kind of stuff. But that's a perspective. Based on that, I am increasingly facing situations where people have not seen what's possible. And I'm quite amazed that when I tell case study stories like the three of you have, which I've got dozens and dozens of, not hundreds of them, and I bring that up, people say, oh, I'd never heard of that before. I didn't know I could do that. And one of the reasons that we're doing this on this show and we bring different people in like yourselves to talk about it is so others that haven't seen it and haven't experienced it can have a wow moment and say, you know, we could do that too. It's possible. I'd like to, I'd like to talk a little bit about 
a little bit more about the leadership as you brought it up. And this is kind of personal, but when did each of you think much about leadership? When, when did it kind of intersect with you? I want to hear your examples. I've got one that's very vivid in my mind that goes back many, many years. But when did you first think about, oh, there is leadership? Anyone? Well, I can, I'll jump in. This is Paul. Um, you know, I started seeing it, I guess, uh, you know, Jay, you said, when did you first? And I, I think I would take it back to high school, you know, maybe even in, in seventh or eighth grade when I saw that things needed to be done, either from a proactive standpoint or there were problems. And I started jumping in and realized that when I wasn't jumping in or when, you know, a couple of other leaders weren't jumping in, uh, things weren't getting done. Um, whether it was on a sports team or student council or something like that. And then it, it continued all the way through my college experience and then into business. And, you know, I always thought, and, and my grandfather, who I think was a great leader, used to tell me this, you know, Paul, 95% of the people in the world are probably not leaders. And they tend to be followers and they, they want to be led. They want to be part of a winning team. And if you've got that gift, then use it. And I had the good fortune of meeting Stedman Graham, who, um, as we all know, is, has been Oprah's you know, life partner. And he came uh, to our book launch party for How Goodness Pays with Kevin Warren, who was the president of the Minnesota Vikings at the time and now is the Big Ten Commissioner. And they, they held a book launch party for us. And, and Stedman spoke, and he spoke uh, again the next day at the Good Leadership Breakfast. And he, he took that 95% number to 99%. And he used the term, he said, if, if you're in that 1% of people who are leaders, you have a tremendous responsibility. First of all, it's difficult to be on every day, but you know, God has given you those gifts and so use them and you have that responsibility. And I guess coming full circle that, you know, in, in high school and then beyond, I guess I've, I've always embraced leadership and, um, and I guess I didn't think about it as overtly as the question you asked, Jay. But I think I always knew that um, I had some talent to be a leader. And I also knew that I um, wanted to be in positions to lead people, and especially in the business world. And so um, I embraced it and I sought mentors and uh, coaches and people who could help me with that and experiences. Why I started at Procter & Gamble because P&G was always known as one of the best training grounds for leaders. And it's why of my options coming out of college, I, I chose that path because I wanted to get that coaching and training. And my last point I'll make is, is that the way that I met my co-author, Paul Botts, was because I was part of a senior leadership training program at Cardinal, and he was assigned as my leadership coach. And so... Um, even then, after I had been in, in business for 17, 18 years, I still needed a leadership coach and still do today. So um, it, uh, I, I think part of it's in your DNA and part of it needs to be learned and coached. It's, uh, I agree it can be coached. It's definitely a coachable skill. Um, but 
there's something special about leaders. And, and my, my early experience with leadership uh, at Ford, working with various bosses and mentors, uh, there's a real difference between the guys who are willing to challenge the status quo and swim upstream versus the guys who just want to kind of go along and, and do their thing. Uh, I always was, was uh, energized by those who were willing to take on the system, to try new things, and to be innovative, uh, even when it wasn't popular. So I think being willing to uh, challenge the status quo is a real uh, key element of, of leadership. And uh, that's something I learned quickly in, in my career at Ford. Well, it brings me what you just said there. When I was a young guy, uh, I was the youngest guy behind glass doors in the General Motors building. I had come from New York where I started my career. And a guy from New York came into my office and said, now you've done it, Alan. And I said, what have I done? And his name was Arnie Gittleman. I'll never forget it. He said, if you stick your head up, you're going to get shot at. If you don't stick your head up, you're going to get fired. And he said, so step up and lead. There's a lot of truth to that. Amen. It's not for the faint of heart. And Chuck? I uh, am like um, Paul in the sense that I go all the way back to um, my youth. And it always seemed that I was uh, the person in charge of teams or assignments, even in my family, even though I was uh, right in the middle of uh, seven boys, uh, I tended to have that, 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 uh, that um, assignment. But I, if I had to point to a leader that really influenced me the most, and, and I agree that a leadership can be coached, but there are some people who just seem to have that gift and uh, the one that I would refer to would be uh, G, who used to be the CEO for what was Bendix at the time. Well, I was assigned to the uh, corporate office, and he kind of uh, took me under his wing. And I was uh, kind of like his fixer. So if something had to uh, be investigated, uh, I had the access to the plane and the helicopter to, to fly places to chase things down for him. So. Uh, it was funny that uh, he would pick me out of the group. Um, it's almost when I first arrived, he took a liking to me. But he also had this uh, charismatic, this charisma, where people gravitated to him. And so from that perspective, uh, there are these kind of people stand out. I think the, the, the other kind that I've noticed are people who... Um, Whatever they say, uh, uh, people tend to listen to them, not because they're the most powerful person in the room, but uh, they have such innovation and such insight and such depth in their, their thinking that uh, they uh, are, even though they may not be subject matter experts, uh, they, they, people hear them. They have that ability to penetrate uh, uh, in a room so that everyone in the room hears, what, hears, hears them. I That's can't great. I, I, uh, we're going to uh, uh, thank you, Chuck. Uh, we need to uh, move on toward a break, and we'll come back to that and add to it. As we move into a short break, Paul, could you share with our audience some of the value 
uh, perspectives and value add of uh, value propositions of one of your current companies, the Revere Cattle Company. Sure. Um, well, Revere Cattle Company and Revere Farms, we're actually a 153-year-old family farm. And my partner is Tom Revere. He's a fourth-generation uh, farmer and cattle rancher, and uh, his kids are fifth generation. So it's a fifth-generation, 153-year-old family farm started in uh, 1867 by Tom's great-great-grandfather and still on the original homestead in Olivia, Minnesota, which is about 100 miles southwest of Minneapolis. And I met Tom when I was at Cargill and we started talking about, um, you know, why he hasn't done his own brand. And he said, because he was doing things that were unique to the industry. And, um, you know, we struck up a conversation and eventually we became partners and what he is doing that no one else is doing, uh, brings us to our unique value proposition, uh, which, which my definition is, is, you know, what is the benefit you own that is more relevant than the next best alternative? And, um, the benefit is around um, really uh, two big things. One is consistency. The hardest thing to do uh, with an animal is because their genetics and the makeup are always different is, you know, how do you produce a great tasting steak week after week after week? And so Tom has perfected that through his genetics so that we get a very consistent experience week after week. Uh, the second is, is the, the most sustainable uh, beef brand in the United States is uh, what Tom is doing on his farm. No one else is doing regarding uh, carbon emissions, production of land use, fossil fuel use, and groundwater use. And so we're the most sustainable beef brand out there. It's a 100% all-natural Black Angus uh, program, and uh, we've been very successful. We launched the brand about two and a half years ago. We're in 21 states, and uh, well over uh, 300 grocery stores and well over 5,000 restaurants. So um, been going well so far, Jay. So thanks for asking. That's great. And now we'll move on to our more formal break and be back very shortly. Are you ready to look at your business from a fresh perspective to gain competitive advantage and grow your revenue? Masters Alliance Business Consultancy brings you beyond demographics. Are you ready to look at your business from a fresh perspective to gain competitive advantage and grow your revenue? Masters Alliance Business Consultancy brings you beyond demographics, the character of the customer, an advanced approach to understanding and engaging your current and potential customers. Traditional demographic views no longer tell you all you need to know beyond demographics engages your organization to gain unique deep customer segmentation understanding you get new perspectives of the motivations and needs of your customers masters alliance is ready to help you identify distinct customer value with actionable customer priorities we work with our team to reveal these hidden opportunities and develop demand creating value propositions now is the time to look at your market through a new lens and chart a new competitive direction. At Masters Alliance, you know that customers are more than meets the eye, and success depends on looking beyond demographics. Visit mastersalliance.com to learn more. tuned into get to the future on time do differently tomorrow hosted by jay allen to reach out to the show with questions or comments please send an email to info at mastersalliance.com that's info at mastersalliance.com now back to get to the future on time do differently tomorrow 
Hi, I'm Jay Allen, your host of this program of Future, Get to the Future on Time and Do Differently Tomorrow. For those of you that might just be tuning in, we have three exciting, experienced guests with us today, Paul Hillen, Chuck Foster, and Dennis Campbell. We've been discussing change and leadership, even transformation. And we've been also discussing the personal aspects of that and how we came across uh, leadership. And Chuck, you were just finishing up. Anything else you would like to add? Uh, no, that's... Um... I will, I will uh, thank you. I will just jump in here. And what I was thinking about during the break is there's uh, somebody mentioned, uh, I think it was you, Paul, about needing to get things done. And there is a, there is a group, there are a group of uh, people that are doers, but not necessarily leaders. And sometimes doers evolve into leaders. And then there are the reluctant leaders and people who don't know their leaders. Uh, my early experience was in also in high school where one of my football buddies had been dropped by one of the cheerleaders and he was a, he was out to get even that he had been dropped by the cheerleader and so when we had the vote for the cheerleaders that came up uh, unfortunately a couple of weeks later he lobbied with all the sports guys in all the te different teams to vote against her and I heard about that. Obviously, he was lobbying me. So we were in this big auditorium, and it came time for the vote. And I, I didn't feel there was anything else I could do. I was scared to death because I thought, boy, am I going to pay for this in the next football practice? I stood up and revealed the whole plot and said, uh, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And any of you guys that got any guts will vote what you think is supposed to be done. And this gal was voted in. And uh, a teacher came up to me and said, hey, that was leadership. I said it was. I didn't know anything about leadership. So some of us are very reluctant. And um, one of the things I'd like to ask this group is, uh, can you recall any times that you didn't lead and maybe regretted not stepping up like I happened to? Now, I have my own stories later in life about not stepping up, but my stepping up was accidental. Any time that you said, gee, well, I should Jay, have done Yes. There are probably an example or two, but the, the human beings have a, a unique capacity to forget the things that are wrong and bad about what happened to you along the way. So I'm sure that I, I'm sure there are times when I didn't step up as I should have, but I don't remember. I couldn't tell you at least even one. Well, that's, you're very fortunate because I still remember one of mine. Well, actually it wasn't a long time ago. It was only about five years ago where I have had an opportunity to really make a difference and, and, uh, I was busy and thought that the risk of doing it was extraordinary. And then here I've got a chapter in my book about the burden of regret is greater than the risk of leading. So I have to eat my own words. Uh, I have one uh, that, that goes back to the 
to the diversity things when I was um, uh, the women's uh, focus group where I went in and started telling them what I uh, thought uh, were the issues. And uh, they told me um, uh, very, uh, in subtle, in subtle, very subtle ways uh, that um, um, you're here to hear us. <laughs> okay, so I, I, at that time, I, I think I regret stepping up in the sense that uh, they had their own ways of doing things and uh, they just uh, smacked me a little bit uh, to be humble. So I, I, I learned that and I learned not to, to speak up with that, with that particular group. Well, your heart was in the right place, maybe. <laughs> so I'd like to uh, turn to you, Paul, and talk to you a little bit about uh, your book that you developed recently with Paul Botts, and like you to talk a little bit about that book, but also tell us uh, how you how you guys decided to write a book. What happened? Yeah, well, uh, thanks, Jay. It was uh, and it's 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 actually not something that I was looking at doing. Uh, you know, I, I I didn't really have on my bucket list that someday I would write a book. And actually, my co-author, Paul Botts, is the one that uh, continued to uh, push me to do it. And the impetus was quite a bit uh, based on my metamorphosis. I talked earlier about exercising new leadership muscles and the fact that I had to completely change my muscle memory from my days at P&G on how I was trained to lead versus coming into a new organization at Cargill, requiring a completely different way of leading. And Paul Botts was my coach. And his point to me was, boy, you really changed your leadership style. And if, if you can do it, uh, others can as well, which is why I, I formally believe that, yes, you need the raw talent of being a leader, but it can be coached, right? You can, um, you can continue to improve and you should as a leader. So the name of the book is called How Goodness Pays. And the idea is, is that leaders who exhibit certain behaviors that are tied to elements of goodness get better financial results. And the reason I pushed back on Paul when he first came to me and said, let's, let's write a book is I said, you know, the world does not need another leadership book. You know, there are, um, I, I think, uh, you know, only second to leadership in a library, in a business library, is strategy books. I mean, there's so many leadership books. So I said, if we do something different, sure, I'll lean in. So we did three years of research. And the, the different was, let's prove that certain behaviors of leaders actually get those better financial results. So we did three years of research. And we talked to, we did a, a literature search where we looked at everything that had been written on leadership for the last 40 years. We did qualitative interviews with 15 top CEOs of small, medium, and large companies uh, who had been highly successful and recognized as great leaders. And then we did about a thousand person statistically significant survey to get that data. And that produced three things. One is it produced a definition of goodness is, uh, which is, we say when people thrive together in a culture of encouragement, accountability, and positive teamwork. It also produced a diagnostic tool. So for, for those listeners who may be familiar uh, with, with the Bain uh, question, 
you know, the, the, the one question out there that says, would you recommend this um, business or not? Um, it's similar to that. We, we have one question that says, how would you rate your direct leader on proactively promoting goodness in his or her organization? And so that was the second outcome. And we named it GPS because it's called the goodness pays score. But it's also um, a double entendre of your, the GPS in your car as it helps you get on the right path to where you want to go to better financial results. And then uh, finally, we came up with five critical components or behaviors that are required by leaders. Uh, so when we talk about the behaviors that produce better financial results, we saw that the companies that got those better results um, did these five things. They had a compelling business plan. They brought their organization along so that folks believe, believe that profits were healthy for everyone and not just the leaders. They had a strong team-based culture. Uh, their leaders made timely and transparent decisions. And uh, they had magnetic ethics. They attracted people with, the, with great ethics. And so when they did those five things, they got better results. And what we, what we learned through the GPS and all of the data when we looked at it is that those who score high on that single question, similar to the, the net promoter score that I talked about with Bain and company, uh, that single question of the GPS, does your leader exhibit goodness in their decision-making? Those who scored a nine or a 10 on the 10-point scale, 81% of them got better financial results. Uh, Paul, I need to interrupt you right there. Sure. Uh, we're going to need to break off, but thank you so much for bringing that up and helping all of us understand. And I would love to spend more time on it at another time. Uh, I'd like to thank Paul Hillen, Chuck Foster, and Dennis Campbell for joining me today. Uh, we discussed some very interesting transformation, change, and leadership things. And thank you for the privilege of letting me host you today, and please tune in next week. We'll be back in touch. Thank you for listening to Get to the Future on Time. Do differently tomorrow with Jay Allen. Next week, we will have more takeaways for your business success. So please join us next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk soon.